Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Speed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It's a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624 or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalai. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you this hour as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off. Chaz starts us off this hour from New York. Hey, Chaz, welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Hey, Noah, happy 4th. Hey, happy 4th. And actually, Chaz, you know what? My producer just reminded me, uh, we are doing a special. All of July, the first person to call in to the Ask Noah Show receives a free T-shirt. So congratulations, you won a free T-shirt. When you're done with your question, I'm going to put you back on hold. We'll have Sarah pick up, and she'll get your particulars, and we'll get that shipped out to you. Awesome. Cool. Yeah. How about that? Yeah, great. Uh, So how can we help? Uh, well, first off, as you know, is your tradition, send a couple extra range down uh, rounds down range for us in New York behind enemy lines. Oh, brother, you know uh, I'm going to be there. <laughs> All right, and uh, I wanted to talk to you uh, about last week's announcement that uh, Lubuntu is going to kind of become the official distro of uh, AltaSpeed Ask Noah, if uh, for lack of a better term, I guess. Sure, sure. Um, so. One of the things that struck me is the decision to go with Lubuntu because it's my understanding that Lubuntu and really the entire LX desktop is moving to Qt. And I know that I actually got uh, scared off of uh, Solus and Bungie, and I think Chris did too uh, when he was doing his Bulletproof Linux exercise uh, because they're switching to Qt. So are, do you have any concerns about uh, the um, uh, potential for problems, or do you think there will be uh, any problems that arise from that? No, I Uh, Yes, I had concerns. Most, if not all of them, have been alleviated, and I will go into why as best I can. So first of all, disclaimer, I am not a developer, and I don't play one on TV or on the radio. However, I know a lot of developers, and they are very smart people, much smarter than me, and uh, and so I've asked them these things. I've asked, you know, what, what, what graphic environment do you prefer and why? And what you find is that QT is highly pervasive. And I was having a discussion with a gentleman. Uh, we were we were in his car. We were driving around. He, he drives a Mercedes SUV. And we were driving around, and he was explaining to me the, the intricate differences between GTK and QT and why he felt that QT was superior. And one of the things he pointed to me is he said, QT can scale to just about anything. That interface right there, and he points to his car GPS, and he says, that interface right there is running on top of Qt. And, uh, and I said, are you sure? He goes, yeah. And, and then he elaborated and explained how he knew and that they actually, the company that he works for actually had some involvement with that. And, and so, so, yeah, I mean, you, you start looking at how cute can be just about everywhere and how well it works. And then I take my, and I couple that with my personal experience of running on KDE, which of course is very cute, heavy, cute dependent and, uh, and having no real issues. And eventually what I have come to the conclusion over what I've arrived at is that seems to be where the future of the 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 the, uh, the the user interface, rather, as it were, seems to be. And as far as Lubuntu's decision to switch to Qt, obviously the release ma- Simon Quigley is who you're talking about, is both the release manager for Lubuntu as well as he works for us here at AltaSpeed Technologies. And I was able to have you know the nice thing about him being on staff is I'm able to ask him all of these questions directly. 
and he received a lot of input. He took a lot of time to consider the decision and received a lot of input from people very high up at Canonical. People have been doing this a lot longer than he has. And unilaterally, they all say this is the this is the best decision for Lubuntu to go down. And so he's making that decision based on what everybody wants to see and based on what people much older with much more experience have advised him to do. And so I think that's a very wise and rational decision on his part. And when he made that, when he first, he broke the news of Lubuntu switching to QT on the Ask Noah show. And when he did that, our immediate Twitter reply across the board was in support of this decision. And uh, so I, I guess what I'm trying to say, Chaz, is that every time I look for an excuse to say this is a bad decision or it should make me nervous, I find the exact opposite to be true. And uh, having worked with Simon pretty closely for the past year now, I can tell you that he doesn't do anything lightly and he doesn't do anything without research. And I would trust him. And I do trust him implicitly. There are entire swaths of projects for, for our company that he is doing. And I am barely, if at all, involved in them. Um, it's It comes up in a meeting and we discuss it at a very high level of what the objectives uh, objectives are, what a budget is and stuff like that. And past that, he just takes it and runs with it. And so far... Uh, he's never, he's never disappointed. He always delivers. And so I have no reason to expect that he wouldn't do exactly the same with Lubuntu and it switched to QT. Now I just, I do want to make a bit of a clarification. We're talking about a preferred distro, uh, for AltaSpeed. What we are doing is AltaSpeed Technologies is going to provide professional support for users who choose to use Lubuntu. So our customers are free to install whatever they want per, you know, regular Ubuntu, Fedora. We've got a lot of CentOS installations. None of that is going to change. Where the change is going to be is if you don't have any relationship with AltaSpeed Technologies at all and you install Ubuntu and you wake up and say, hey, I really need some help with this or I need to pay somebody to, 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 to fix this issue, to solve this problem, a lot of other distributions have partnered with IT companies to say, we're going to provide you some level of professional support or they have blessings from the parent company so you can buy support directly from canonical or from directly from Red Hat. What we are going to do is, is Simon wants to have the ability to push Lubuntu into more markets and allow people for professional commercial use to be able to use Lubuntu. And to do that, what he needs is he needs a company that can say, we have a, we have a 24 hour support line. We have a 24 hour email ticket system. We have technicians that are standing around all hours of the night that can help you with an issue. Can we put those resources to use for people that want to use Lubuntu for a price? And he came to me and asked me, he's like, is that something we do? I said, yeah, absolutely, we can do it. Uh, and so that's what the relationship is. Uh, and and he, he knows that he is free to take that relationship somewhere else at any time if he feels that there is a that, that there's a good that there's a better reason or a better opportunity for him to do that. We, you know, it's not something that we asked him to do. Uh, and uh, and and so it's it's a it's a free at will. So he, I, and I again that goes back to the trust mechanism, and 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 trust for intentions and 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 respect for integrity and stuff like that. He's the kind of guy that if he didn't think Altaspeed Technologies was the right company to support that or was going to try to steer him or you know influence him to make a decision one way or the other, I have. I have. I don't think he would, with any equivocations, uh, rip the string out of that. Does that kind of clarify a little bit? Yeah, it does. And you actually answered the second half of the question I had, which was, you know, was the decision to go of Lubuntu solely based on uh, Simon being employed uh, by uh, AltaSpeed and the Ask Noah show? 
because uh, I know that you guys have been very Matei heavy in the past. In fact, uh, I actually did get uh, the tough book you recommended a few weeks ago and set it up with Ubuntu Matei. So I was just wondering, I guess, if uh, if Wimpy worked for you, would it have been uh, Ubuntu Matei that you guys went with or how right. that worked? But you kind of answered that a yeah, little bit. Yeah, so. and, and it quite possibly would have. And, and to be fair, full disclosure, I don't have Ubuntu running on any of my systems right now, and I have no intention to install Ubuntu anytime in the near future. And, and that that is me exercising my free will on the other side of this arrangement to say, okay, we are, we will go ahead and absorb because we have the infrastructure in place, right. To support any Linux distro. And so if we have people on staff that are, that are very well versed and, and are very well connected to a given distribution, they are very well positioned to provide support at, again, at a price to people that are interested in it. And the thing with Simon is it's literally him and two other guys that are working. Well, really one other guy, uh, that 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 are working on the Lamontu project. Now the advantage to that is, and I'm not blind to this, and it is something. It's why I haven't stamped out using Lamontu, making it an official ultra speed distro. That that's just what we deploy on our on our on our employees' computers. There is an advantage in when when the wireless network icon doesn't work. That was something that came up in KDE a couple of weeks ago. If you were on KDE Neon, there is an advantage to being able to pick up the phone and call somebody on staff and say, "Hey, this thing is broken and it's driving me nuts, and we need to get it fixed." And now they can instantaneously go and fix that thing, whatever that thing is. So there is an advantage to that. But one of the things that keeps me from doing this uh, is the fact that I have made decisions up till now for what we're going to use on AltaSpeed based on where I think the boat, the where I think the boat lies for most people. And so right now, as much as much of an advantage as I think that is, I think it would handicap our ability to help customers and support customers because the vast majority of those customers are going to be using Ubuntu proper. I even think to a certain degree, it's my personal belief that even using Ubuntu KDE, Kubuntu, is uh, is straying far enough away that I think it it hinders our ability to support customers, which is why I encourage all of our employees to have at least one Ubuntu proper box with GNOME. Whether or not that's what you use on a daily basis. My laptop's running Kubuntu, but I still have an Ubuntu proper box with GNOME. Uh, and in fact, if I have one-off things, for for example, we took a computer out to Southeast Linux Fest when we were doing the streaming out there. That box was running Ubuntu GNOME. And it's not because I think that Ubuntu GNOME is a better operating system for production. In fact, I think it's far inferior for production. And I think there are st some stability issues, but I need to be able to keep my finger on that pulse or I am useless to you as the guy to call for Linux hope. I'm only useful to you guys if I can answer those questions. And uh, like I said, uh, Chess, thanks for the call. I'm going to put you back on hold. We'll have Sarah pick up and she'll take your particulars. If I get too far away from that market, if I get too far outside of the ability to tell you this is what's working, this is what's not working, here are the potential pitfalls, I don't think I'm doing my job properly. And yeah, uh, Axum asks in the chat room, is it hard to support customers with anything other than vanilla Ubuntu? We have customers from all sorts of distros uh, and we provide support to them. And I, I wouldn't say it's, I wouldn't say it's hard, but absolutely. Do we have guides that are all written for Ubuntu proper? And do we have everything already kind of mapped out for all of the common problems and all the common ways to get things done? If people want like a virtual server, right? That's something we do pretty regularly, set up virtual hosts for people. We have, the, if you can do that on CentOS or Ubuntu, we have that down to a fine science. We have scripts that'll run and set the whole thing up for us. Um, can we do that on SUS? Absolutely. Can we do that on Fedora? Of course we can. Is it a little bit more difficult? Does it require a little bit more manually tinkering with? Yes. And are there some odd issues that pop up on the side because... We've not tried all of those things in the same soup bowl together. Yeah, that happens. So people ask us, 
we typically will re recommend Ubuntu proper unless it's a server, in which case we're recommending CentOS. Unless they need support, in which case it's Red Hat. But we try to have, we try to have predictable avenues, predictable paths, things that we have done before. And that actually brings me to that actually brings me to another interesting discussion that I had this week. Privacy. There is this idea that your information should never be shared with any company for any reason at any time. And if any company ever collects your information, then they are a bad company who means you harm and they should be punished. And if not, you know, chastised online. And I think we have swung too far the other direction. Certainly, there is a point to be made that Google, the company, often and frequently abuses their customers' data. And I don't think anyone would argue with that. And I don't think anybody likes that. And I'm certainly not here to tell you that that's, that's an okay thing. I think when we got to the point of putting Amazon Echoes and, uh, and Google Home Assistants and the Apple spy pod, whatever they call it, all of those things are taking data and sending that data up to the cloud. And I think that, I think that's a dangerous thing. I think it's a bad thing. And, uh, you know, in celebration of the fourth independence day, of course, we would recommend that you take a look at things like C file, that you take a look at things like next cloud and try to offload your infrastructure onto computers that you own. But, this idea that no company should ever collect any data on you for any reason and that you should be hesitant to ever give any company any data, I think is a bit of a fallacy. And I, I got into a discussion on our last YouTube video. Uh, and basically, what it came down to was, was the semantics argument of uh, should they be collecting information like the IP address? And I started out, at first I thought it was just a technical misunderstanding. And I said, you know, the thing is, an IP address is not really a pi private piece of data. It, you have to have the IP address on the TC, on the uh, packet header so it knows where to route the traffic, where it came to and from. And so that alone isn't is fine. It's that when you start using that to coordinate to actual people that it becomes problematic. And uh, the guy came back and he said, listen, I'm just telling you that, you know, back in the days when we had dial-up, you're getting a different IP address every time. Those tables to which person had that IP address at that specific time, you know, was only held by the ISP. And so it was difficult to search th through. These days, you connect with an IP address. You've got you're holding that IP address for maybe months at a time, maybe years at a time. And so, even if the even if these other companies don't have access to that ISP's IP table database, they can make a reasonable guess that this is the same person. This is the same person. This is the same person. Okay, now everything has overnight just totally flip-flopped and now they're going to completely different sites and viewing completely different videos and all of that. This is probably a new person. And so they, and so, so they tried that. And I think there's still some, some, you know, technical misunderstandings because we're talking about, they say, well, it ties you to your credit card and your Mac address. Okay. So let's be clear. Mac addresses don't transition layer three devices. So Mac addresses are only on the inside of your router. They can't be passed through a layer three device. And, uh, I'm not sure how we get to credit card numbers, but, um, that, that is false. But uh, it, it evolved in this, this larger discussion of, well, let's not talk about the semantics of just the telemetry. Let's just say that Canonical doesn't need that information to begin with. And I think it's a broader, broader problem. And I was talking about this with uh, some of the leadership here at Altaspeed. And I said, what do we collect on customers and why do we do that? And how do we use that information? And 
could if we were a larger company, if we were the size of Canonical, would people be saying this about us? And is that something is is that something that we should change now? And so as we started to kind of dive into it, yes, we do collect customer data, a lot of it. And I said, well, why do we do that? Why are we collecting that data? How is it being stored? And all those kinds of things. And the discussions that we got into is all of that data is being collected because we need that data to better serve our customers. It's not about it's not about putting something on a piece of paper that says we have X amount of clients and 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 here they are and they're all unique because we have identified these unique IP addresses. Now and there's be nothing wrong with that if that's what we were doing. Because that was an argument that was made about Canonical. Well, they're just doing that so they can say that there's this many installations of Ubuntu. Why is that a bad thing? Why is that a bad thing? If they can go to Adobe and say, we want you to port Photoshop to Linux because there's this many users. Why is it a bad thing if they want to go to uh, you know Google and say that you should consider porting your software or buying these computers because X amount of people are on Ubuntu using Ubuntu? Why, are those, why is that a bad thing? Why is it a bad thing if they go to Microsoft and say, you want to run your infrastructure on Ubuntu? You want, to, you want to have people be able to use your Microsoft Office products on Ubuntu because there's X amount of people on Ubuntu. I don't think that's a bad thing. And I'll be the first to tell you, we do the exact same, theory, same thing here at AltaSpeed. We pay attention to what our customers like. We pay attention to what our customers use us for. If they have wireless devices, how many wireless devices on, on average do they, access points I'm talking about, how many do they have in a given site? So we can start to compile metrics and say, if you have a 20,000 square foot concrete building, we can give you a rough idea without ever having set and foot inside how many access points you're going to need and what kind of coverage you can expect to get, what kind of performance you can expect. And we know that because we've done this many other 20,000 square foot concrete buildings. If you have a hotel, we average rooms a hotel, you know, again, Concrete construction, how many access points are you going to need? We're going to know that because we are we are collecting that information to serve our customers well. And I'm open to another point of view. If you want to give me a call, 855-450-NOAH, that's 855-450-6624. Of course, you can email us live at asknoahshow.com. I'm willing to have this conversation. I'm willing to have this debate. But I think the pendulum has swung too far the other direction. Misusing customer data, misusing and mistreating privacy, is a horrible thing. But we need to understand that there are companies out there, and we're one of them, that use data to serve our customers well. And yeah, to better our profit margin. You better believe it. We're a capital, I'm a capitalistic greedy pig. I love making money. And the best way for me to make money is to find people who have a need and fill that need. And the only way that I know what that need is, is if I'm collecting information when people call into our call center, when they fill out a contact form, when they interact with us on social media, I need to know what those people are asking about. I need to know if we should be concentrating on cloud services, if we should be concentrating on Wi-Fi, on networks, promoting security. It's why I can go on the show at the beginning of 2018 and tell you guys that we have seen an absolute crazy amount of inquiries into managed services. People are asking, how do I get off of Google? How do I get off of Apple? How do I get off of Dropbox? What services can I replace those with? And it gives us the information that we need to say, okay, we need to go and invest in some serious infrastructure so we can start offering C-file instances. I can't even keep up anymore 
with the amount of signups that we have for CFA. We actually we're working on building out an infrastructure so that people can self sign up and and add their credit cards. We ended up just giving them away for free a couple of people because they would telegram me or they'd email me or whatever it was. It's I want to sign up for your CFA instance. How, how do I do that? I'm sick of being on Dropbox. I want a cheaper rate. I want the same service. I want better security. How do I do that? And a couple of those times I just, I was in an airport or I was on an airplane or I was in a car, didn't have the ability to sign them up. So I just said, here, I'll just, I'll, we'll just give it to you. We'll just add you. That's how crazy that is. And the only reason we know that is because we track how many of those calls that have come in that they've said, I want to get off of managed services. I want to own my own infrastructure, or I want to go to a different managed infrastructure with a company that we can trust, a company that doesn't have a private key that's shared between every employee that works for you, which is what Dropbox does. We don't. We can't see your data. Your data is encrypted client-side, and it just simply syncs over to our encrypted server. The data is encrypted at rest and in transit. And for those of you that have read into this um, this uh, silly security thing that says that C-File is not secure, those people are not setting up C-File correctly. The founder of C-File, the lead developer of C-File, has come out numerous times and says that HTTPS needs to be put into place for data in transit. And those people that are knocking on the security of C-File, they're not using HTTPS for the encryption in transit. So you need to read a little bit more up on your security. But, that, you know, and I, I didn't want to, I, I don't know that I really wanted to get that far into it, but what I'm trying to say is there is a good reason to collect data. And the reality is, as long as it, really what it comes down to is intentions and integrity. You And that's not, I admit, that's not something that's readily apparent. You can't just go to google.com slash about and, and read up on how the, how the integrity of the people that make these decisions, you know, work. And nor could you do that with AltaSpeed. You, you have to trust me, I guess. But I would invite anybody to come spend a day with me, come around, spend a day with any, any of our team members, come spend a day with any of our team members and follow them around. Uh, we'd invite anybody in. And you can take a look at how we deal with things, how we treat customer data, how we treat... Uh, the privacy of customers, and how we use that information. Never once, never once, never, ever, ever have we ever looked at a piece of data and said, well, we could, we have quite the table of contact, li contact lists and contact links and all of this stuff. We could, we could email that stuff out. Chris and I were having a conversation just, I think, two months ago, three months ago, somewhere in there. And I said, you know, obviously, anytime you guys reach out to asknoahshow.com or send an email at live at asknoshow.com, of course, that email address is, is ingested into our system. So we have your contact information. And that's, of course, so that we can reply and answer the questions. And I, and I, I, I was talking to him. I said, you know, the thing is, there is a lot of stuff that comes out that, I never make it, that never makes it into the show notes or things that I'd like to expand upon. You know, if we talk about, like I talked about C-File, wouldn't it be great if you had an entire how-to guide that came in uh, on C-File and then anybody that wanted to could, could follow that guide and set it up? And I was telling him, I said, there are services out there that we could afford and I, I could set up a, a whole addendum and we could call it the content newsletter or something like that. And, and if people were interested, the people that signed up for this thing, we could send them that information. So you'd get the show. And then in addition to the show, you'd get this addendum that would have, you know, more details, uh, not just about the show, maybe about guests. Maybe it would have the extended interviews that we had to cut down to fit into our showtime. You know, we could include all of that. It could have a transcript of the show, maybe something like that. So you could, you know, control F or if you're on a plane, you want to read something like that. There's all sorts of different things we could do. 
And I said, but I'm afraid to do it because I'm afraid that that wouldn't be in the best interest of the people that contacted the show. I'm afraid they, you know, they, they may not like that. They may not want their, I don't like my inbox cluttered. So I wouldn't want to do that to anybody else. And so it's not, we, it's not like we don't have the ability to do those things. It's we choose not to, because I don't think it's in your best interest. I don't think it's what you want. And that's what this show seeks to do. Serve its listener base. I said on day one, I don't care if we have a successful radio show. I care about helping the people that call into this program. And if the byproduct of that happens to be a successful radio show, then so be it. And that's the same way that we operate things at Speed Technologies. We rarely have meetings about money. We have meetings about serving people and helping people and doing good work and keeping our word. And if those things, if those things translate into a paycheck, then so be it. And so far, 10 years later, that's worked out pretty well for me. So I think we're going to keep on that track. Sorry to get drugged down that far into the, the whole privacy discussion, but it is something we're talking about. one 855 450 noah that's 855-450-6624, the email, live at com. Now, a couple of, you guys may remember this, a couple of months ago, we did a drawing for a, uh, for, for a, for a gift card. Amazon gift card for, I think it was the 512th person that signed up for the Ask Noah Show, Show Telegram group. And you can do that by going to telegram.asknoahshow.com. If you're not familiar with Telegram, it is an instant messaging platform that has taken off. Millions and millions of people are on Telegram. It costs nothing to sign up. And the advantage of Telegram is you're not using your mobile messaging to send things back and forth. You can do group messages. You can forward messages. You can save things. And all of these things exist inside of one network. So it's kind of like the newer version of MSM Messenger or AOL Instant Messenger, if you've ever used those things. Except this is available on the web. It's available on your phone. It's available on your PC. And it is the de facto, is the de facto messaging platform every time I go to an event or every time I'm out and about. I meet people and they'll say, are you on Telegram? Yeah, here's my Telegram ID. And now we can communicate. We can send files. We can coordinate things. You can set up custom notifications because some people you want to be able to notify you, some people you can't. And we have a group where we have an ongoing discussion about the Ask Noah show and about other things too. We've got groups that talk, deal with small business. And of course, there's a, de- a group that deals with the Linux uh, Rocks Mastodon instance. Found out today there's a Telegram group that deals specifically with the PeerTube instance. All of those things can be done on Telegram. So you should check that out. Telegram.asknoahshow.com. But the gentleman who won... That contest for being the 512 person, now we're up to like eight, 900 some people. This is ridiculous, just totally taken off. The guy who won that particular event, I, I, you know, we congratulated him, we called him, we sent him the, the gift card, and uh, he was kind enough to actually give that, re-gifted, I think, to some other people that needed it more than he did, which I thought was great. Uh, I thought that would be the end of my interaction with him, and uh, went to Southeast Linux Fest and had, a, and, ha- and had Keith on the show, who was a small business owner, and talked her ear off. Come to find out, that Brian, the gentleman that won the gift card, actually works with and for Keith. They, they, they work together in a consulting-type fashion. And uh, Keith does a lot of finance stuff, which is fitting since he won a gift card and then gave it away. And uh, so his coworkers, at the time I wasn't aware of this, but his coworkers are giving him a hard time. They're like, yeah, Keith, he, Brian, he, he's not even, he doesn't really even know the Linux. He just uh, converts people to Linux willy-nilly. And, uh, and so I brought that up on the air as an example. And uh, Brian reached out to me. He's like, hey, listen. I know Linux. I use Linux all the time. I mean, they're just giving me a hard time, but and I want to tell the full story. And I said, I don't want to hear the full story on the phone. I want you to call in and tell it on the program so the listeners can hear 
the full story. So coming back, welcome back to the program, Brian Martell. Hey, man, how's it going? Uh, it's great, man. Just another day in paradise. Awesome. How are you? Yeah, I'm doing great. So you are joining us from Pennsylvania, and uh, and so I, I want to see if I can break down this relationship that you have. So you are a finance guy. You're an accountant kind of a person, and you deal with small businesses, and oftentimes you'll run into some IT problems, and then you will kick those IT problems back to Keith. And when Keith has IT customers and they have some finance problems, they kick it over to Brian. And then you've got William, who is a developer in there who works for you in your small little group. And so if there is a problem with, uh, if you have a development issue, is there somebody needs some software developed, either one of you will kick that to William. And if William is developing software and they say, well, we need some, you know, and it just, it's a symbiotic relationship. Do I have that about right? Yeah, that's, that's pretty close. I mean, sometimes it's, you know, me going out and, um, you know, talking to people and finding out that they have issues. And then uh, sometimes it's customers that I've had for a long time, and then they say, you know, hey, Brian, I've got this issue. Um, you know, how, how much do you know about writing code? And my ability to write code is flimsy. But um, it's great for me to be able to reach out to somebody like Will, who has a, who's just unbelievably talented in writing code. Um, and kind of what the focus of our group is, and there's about... I guess there's about 12 or maybe 13 people in our group. Um, and some of us are more active than others. But it's all about giving you tasks that focus on your passion. So for me, my passion is accounting and finance and helping people that are struggling with money or helping people that have the opposite problem, where they have a lot of money and they need to learn how to manage it. Um, and that's kind of where I come into play. Sure. But Will and Keith, they do a great job with managing the technology and understanding the different solutions. And I happen to be kind of the, the guy that knows everyone in the community. <laughs> and I kind of bring people in and then pass them off to Will and Keith. Or I bring them in and find out what their problem is and then kind of direct Will or Keith to, um, to fix the problem. And then we take that and give it back to the customer. Right. And so the way it was portrayed originally was that uh, you're a finance guy. You don't know much about Linux. The truth is you're actually kind of a geek yourself. You play it with Linux all the time. You're very passionate about Linux and you watch people from a financial perspective. You watch people and they come in and you say, listen, you could be doing that software a different way. You don't have to be using QuickBooks. There's another option. Talk to me about that. Tell me the story. Yeah. So it's come into play a lot, a couple of times for me. Uh, The first time that it came into play was a friend of mine who told me that his business, you know, he, he had the advantage over all of his competitors because he was running QuickBooks for his service business. And it was in the middle of that conversation that I realized that he doesn't understand that QuickBooks is an inventory-based accounting system. And the reason that none of his competitors are using it is because it's the wrong system for his needs. And what I ended up doing was switching him over to uh, GNU Cash and setting it up for him in a way so that it would, it would do exactly what he needed and it worked the exact way that he needed it to um, and give him the reporting that he needed so that he could understand what was happening with his business and how his business was growing. And then also give him the compliance side of accounting, which is you know, the ability to file your taxes and all that kind of stuff. But it, the, the focus that I see a lot on businesses is they, they, they think that they need this proprietary software to manage their accounting, and that's normally not the case. Like, you can, you can do a lot with the current 
um, free and open source accounting software. And it, it really, if, if your accounting system is what makes your business successful, then the next person that's going to come along with enough capital to buy that accounting system is going to knock you out of business. Exactly. Golden Goose is never your accounting system, you're, you're, unless you're Oracle. In that case, your Golden Goose is your accounting system. However, for everyone else, the accounting system that you're using is not your Golden Goose. Your Golden Goose is the product that you sell or the service that you render. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yeah. And what you you know that, that we could have a whole other discussion about that specific idea alone. The idea that your job security is in any one piece of technology or any one piece of knowledge. Your your job security is in your ability to to go into the marketplace and do good work and serve some people. And if you can do that for yourself, you're going to make a lot of money. If you can do that for somebody else, you're going to make a lot of money. Uh, but t- t- so so when you go into these businesses and you recommend something like GNU Cash, it's not just because well, when you went to OSL, that showed as the alternative to QuickBooks. You have a deep understanding of what QuickBooks can do, and more importantly, what it can't do. And you have an understanding of how GNU Cash is going to serve that client better. Then, yes, and sometimes it's not GNU Cash. GNU Cash is is just one of the better of the of the open source accounting systems, but it, it works really well, and it's it's great for me to be able to go in. And point out the weaknesses of the bookkeeping or the you know the different systems that they're using. And my my push is never to twist someone's arm, right? My 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 push is always to to grab their hand and guide them, because an educated customer makes educated decisions. Awesome. And so I always try to make sure that I educate the customer, so the customer is one hundred percent confident that whatever I'm doing, they understand, and they'll be able to implement it properly. I love and, it. And that, that is where the success of, of getting people into open source comes into play, because <laughs> people generally, they're not generally all that concerned about whether their software is open source. The, what they need is they have a test that they need to have get done, mm-hmm. and they need it to get done quickly and as effortlessly as possible. Right. And if right. it doesn't have a problem then all the better. And if I have the freedom at some point to say, you know, this system's not working out, uh, I want to switch to this other system, I don't want you to be stuck in it. I don't want my customers to be stuck in a license contract that says, tough luck, like you're sticking it out until the end of the year, you're paying for this license until the end of the year. You know, good luck with your other system. We're not going to help you um, convert to the other system. Uh, There's a lot of things about these, um, proprietary systems that try to they they kind of lock you in because it makes it very difficult to switch from some of these proprietary systems to other proprietary systems. Absolutely, no, I I agree, and so and that has le- from my understanding from your coworkers that has led into a lot of people whole hog switching right over to Linux. Yeah, oh yeah, all the time, and I've had customers, I, I've. I've had a couple of customers. One customer that said um, they wanted to use, I switched them to Ubuntu, or Mint. I switched them to Mint. They were using Mint for a while, and they, they said, you know, I like this, but I don't, I don't like these things. You know, can you, can you make Mint better? And I said, well, I can just switch it to Ubuntu. And they said, oh, aren't the Mint people going to be mad? I said, no, the Mint people are, are very happy to you know, have taken some of the money that I have given them for you becoming their customer. And Ubuntu is going to be even more thrilled to take some <laughs> to take the money that I'm going to donate to them 
so that they can provide you with a better service. Exactly. And that's what a lot of, a lot of companies don't realize that they invest in creating programs and creating applications that have already been done, that are already created. Um, I've worked for some larger companies. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't want to name them, but there's some larger companies I've worked for that have spent millions and millions of dollars creating software that already exists. And they have this fallacy that the software that they are creating is so proprietary that's going to change the way that they do business. And what they don't realize is that it's not the software. Right. Software enables you to be able to complete a task, but it doesn't complete the task for you. You still have to go out and do whatever the task is. You still have to go out and serve your customer. The idea that your accounting system or your system that you're creating is going to make your customers you know, happier or better, more informed, is not necessarily true. And investing millions of dollars in the software that's already created doesn't make any sense. Right. And it's something that I've had to preach to a lot of people that are, hi- that are higher-ups in companies that don't really understand that. But once they see the transition, once they see, wow, like it, just downloading this, fr- this program that was free, trying it out, realizing it's going to work, and, it, and we still haven't invested anything other than some time, and now, like, we can see this to fruition, and we don't have to hire a development team. We can just pay, you know, hey, you know, we need something developed. We give them, you know, a large sum of money, and then they do exactly what we ask them to do. And does it go to our competitors? Do our competitors get the same, same material? Sure. But it does, that, that's not going to make our customers leave right. and go to our competitors. No. What's going to make our customers leave and go to our competitors is either bad service or bad product. Yeah, and frankly, to be honest with you, as a, as a customer, especially being on the other side of this all the time, what I tell customers, what I advise customers, is you work with the vendor that is least likely to try to lock you in. Anytime I, see, anytime I start to see vendor lock and I start to see long service agreements, I immediately steer a client away from that. And, and I, I'll share an interesting story with, with you and, and, and the listeners is, you know, I, I was consulting for medical, uh, medical uh, clinic a while back, and... Um, there was a particular piece of software they needed to imaging piece of software that they needed. And there were two alternatives. There was one that was open source and there was one that was closed source. And the closed source one was $10,000 per licensed copy. And the open source one was, mm, oh yeah, free. And uh, so we went in there and said, you know, this is obviously why we would suggest that you take a look at the open source one. They didn't even want to see a demo of it. It was not, we're going to go with the proprietary one. We want to, it did run on Linux. We're going to go with the proprietary one. It works better. It's, you know, it's got a good price attached, a service contract, blah, blah, blah. So I called the company and I said, listen, I have some major concerns about this piece of software. I don't like the way that it's licensed, but moving all that aside, I want to know how the support contract works. And they said, well, you pay this, you pay this $5,000 a year and then we license the software to you and then um, we activate it. And I said, okay, and what if we don't pay the $5,000 a year? What happens then? They said, well, then we don't support the software. And I said, well, does the software stop working? No. And then I asked an important question. I said, if we don't pay the $5,000 per year and the software goes we have to reinstall the software can i activate the software without paying the five thousand dollars company said yes i ask again get it in writing yes you can do that you know this all okay all right so fast forward six years down seven years down the road this company goes out of business they get bought out and a new company takes over says we're discontinuing that software we're going to make this new software this that and the other so okay i have this thing in writing that says that they will 
continue to activate our copies of this software, even though you're not officially supporting this support contract. And mind you, this hospital, they had probably 15, 16 different copies of the software uh, that were running at all of their remote locations. Plus, they had, in fact, paid the support contract for every one of those software. So they had, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars at this point invested in this in this company. And uh, and they said, yeah, no, uh, sorry, we just are, are we don't even have the activation systems active anymore. They're, we don't we couldn't activate it for you if we wanted to. And so they were just out. And so what did they wind up with? They wound up on that piece of open source software we had recommended from day one. And you know what they found when they started using it? It had more features and worked more reliably and did a better job than the proprietary thing did. And so it, but it takes somebody like you, it takes somebody like me, it takes somebody like Keith, it takes somebody like William who can sit down and, and explain to a client, listen, this is this is what we need to do. This is what your business model demands. This is what your needs are. And here's a piece of software that fits the bill. And here are the advantages in going with this piece of software over a proprietary alternative. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's I, I see it all the time. And the, the other thing that I that I hear when I when I say, and I and I I've gotten to the point now where I don't say open source until they see that it works. Because right. open source does have kind of a stigma where if I'm talking to someone that has an IT background that isn't an open source person, as soon as I say open source, they say, oh, you mean it doesn't work. And, you know, then I, now I'm playing from behind the eight ball. Whereas if I can show, hey, this works, it works really well, I've tested this out, you know, I, I, always, I always try to educate myself first. It's one of the things, and Will was right, right when he told you that I'm not really a tech guy, one of the advantages I have is that anything that I'm going to sell, I need to learn first. Right. And that means that I need to go out and test the software on my own and try to develop it myself to whatever the customer needs. And do in doing that, I learn the software really well, and I'm able to, to show that I really have a good working knowledge of whatever the software is that I'm, that I'm selling to the customer but you know part of that is if if you're not a tech guy if you don't approach everything from a tech guy perspective it also means you're better suited to align yourself with how your customers how your clients approach things right so you're not looking at things and saying well this doesn't work but that's because of the library in, inside of the library we have this library that connects to this thing it, it's it's not all that nerd stuff right you're just looking and saying listen this button doesn't make sense and it needs to be over here in this particular software this they have all the buttons in the right place and all the buttons work and they all do these things I find that a lot of the really technical people like to make technical excuses for bad software or at least poor performing software. And they always have a reason for it. It just doesn't matter when it comes to the end user. So somebody like you who's able to, to, to look at things from a very pragmatic standpoint, I think is very beneficial. And of course, we're going to continue this discussion both with Brian and we're going to get the William and um, Keith back on the program for, for a special uh, small business episode that's going to be coming up at details. We're going to keep you in suspense, but I really appreciate you taking the time to come here and share with us and correct us, correct the record as it were for exactly what it is you're doing for customers, how you're serving them and how you're not just the guy that installs GNU cash because it's the, the open source alternative to QuickBooks. No, do you mind if I mention one other thing? Please. Okay. So um, in, the tel in the small business telegram discussions, um, a lot of people have been asking about their accounting system and what's the best accounting system um, to use for their small business. And I I've been trying to answer everyone's questions on there as best as I can. Um, the problem with answering some of the questions is that I need to have like an in-depth 
um, understanding of how your business works in order to properly answer your question. So a lot of this stuff I have to kind of take offline and, di- and directly talk to the person that is asking the question. And it's really important for everyone to know that, like, it's <sighs> when setting up an accounting system, there's, there's two critical parts. There's the way that you set it up and then the way that you continue to use it. Um, and part of what I need to know in order to, to answer that question is I need to know what your business is and how your business runs and then what it is that you're looking for when you interface with your accounting system. And if people can kind of give me a little bit more of that, I can better answer their questions. Well said. Absolutely well said. I appreciate you taking the time to come on. Again, Brian Martell, a gentleman who has extensive knowledge in both Linux and, of course, finance, switching people to Linux, rather, along with those other two cohorts. And uh, we have a really special episode of the Ask Noah show coming up for you that Brian's going to be a part of in the next couple of weeks. Uh, It's just, it's a big episode. There's a lot of moving parts to it. And so we're just trying to hammer all of those out. Again, open phones this hour, 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 855-450-6624. The email live at asknoahshow.com. Make your voice heard, become a part of the program. Emailer writes in, good day, Ask Noah Show. If anyone is open to new platforms, I recommend looking these alternatives. If you're looking for an alternative to YouTube, check out PeerTube. If you're looking to an alternative for Twitter, check out Gabby. If you're looking for an alternative to Facebook, check out Minds. And if you're looking for an alternative to Gmail, check out ProtonMail. And uh, I actually signed up for a ProtonMail. And in fact, we're actually looking at switching. Our company is hosted currently on FastMail. We're looking at switching our company system over to ProtonMail because it is encrypted and uh, by default. And uh, they seem to have a privacy-focused base. ARS Technica headline reports Google courting developers for coming game streaming service. Google could be the next major company to announce an effort to stream high-end games from remote servers. Koteku cites five unnamed people familiar with the company's plans in reporting on the existence of an effort to roll out a streaming gaming platform and hardware to enable it all alongside an attempt to bring game developers under the Google umbrella, whether through aggressive recruiting or major acquisitions. Over the past few months, the wild rumors in a video game industry circles haven't involved the PlayStation 5 or Xbox 2. The most interesting chatter has centered around a tech company that's quite literally making moves to tackle video games in a big way. Google, the conglomerate that operates our email, our internet service, our internet browsers, and much more. We haven't heard the specifics from Google of their video game plans, but what we have heard is that a three-pronged approach. First, some sort of a gaming streaming platform. Second, some sort of hardware. And three, an attempt to bring game developers under the Google umbrella, rather through aggressive recruiting or even major acquisitions. That's the word from five people who have either been briefed by Google's plans or heard about them secondhand. Google has been exploring video game initiatives for the most part of a dec- for the better part of a decade. In 2014, the company was reportedly poised to acquire Twitch before Amazon swooped in. Rumors per Rumors circulated for years that Google was also attempting to launch an Android-based console similar to Amazon's Fire TV, but that didn't happen. In 2016, the Google-incubated studio Niantic scored one of the biggest game successes in the last decade with Pokemon Go, but it had spun out into an independent company the year before, and Google has a long history of hiring game developers for projects that never quite materialized. So, this story is incredibly interesting to me, for a number of reasons. The first is, I think in general, streaming gaming is the future of computer gaming for a number of reasons. 
One, gaming as a service means that you don't have to worry about upgrading your hardware every other year. If you talk to, anytime I want a hardware recommendation, I go to my gaming friends and say, what video card should I buy? What motherboard should I buy? Because if it's good enough for them, it's definitely good enough for me. And they have, I mean, they are always on the bleeding edge of what they want. Second reason, it would almost eliminate pirating. Because if it's a service, they basically just de-auth you and then you're not able to authenticate into the service and you can't stream your game. So it eliminates, it, it, it cuts down on game privacy. Now, I'm not here to judge, you know, we, I'm sure you guys know where I stand on, on licensing stuff. I think those games should all be GPL. But if they're not, uh, if somebody chooses not to, I, I've never advocated that at the hand of the government, somebody should force somebody to open source their code. I just think people should choose to because I think it makes more sense in the long term, especially today in, in, the, in, the, in the age of post-Snowden where we have all these security concerns and, and, and so on and so forth. It also eliminates cheating. All of the cheats, a lot, most of them anyway, are client side. And uh, so if you if you set up a gaming system in, as such that all of the gaming hardware, all of the computation is done inside of a data center and the user is just sending input commands and receiving like a 1080p low latency stream so they can see what they're doing, uh, that's really going to cut down in cheating. And I talked to one of my friends that's a that's a big gamer, and I said, could you set up something like with a camera that's watching the the screen, and then it automatically, you know, dodges bullets, stuff like that. And he goes, yeah, you can, but it's not very effective. So it's really going to cut down on cheating. So I, 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 if you look at what Google wants, they want the ability to sell services to people, obviously to data mine. And to do that, they need people, they need everybody to be involved. So if they can come up with a system in which you can buy a $1 or $200 Chromebook and play massively, you know, massively crazy games, like imagine uh, the, uh, you'll have to excuse me because I'm a little out of my room when it comes to massively heavy games, I don't play them. Uh, Call of Duty, uh, for example, is, is, a, is a massive game that requires a massive computing infrastructure and very beefy hardware to play. Imagine if you could play Call of Duty on a $200 Chromebook. Now, I'm happy about this because I think it means huge things for Linux. First of all, I don't see Google setting up hundreds of thousands of Windows servers to host games. I see them, you know, all of these articles talk about being a competition with, with Steam. All of these articles talk about Google starting their own competitor to Steam. But I think there is a chance that Google partners with Steam and Google says, okay, you go ahead and you have the, you know, the gaming service or whatever. We will provide all of the backend gaming infrastructure. We'll provide all, you know, all of the, all of the servers that run the thing and, and we'll provide a gaming client front end that people can install or run or access their web UI or whatever it's going to be. Uh, and you click on this thing and, and, and then it launches a little, launches a little applet that runs and maybe it's Electron or I don't know. Because if, again, all it's really doing is bringing in a 1080p stream and sending inputs. So I, I think it's ripe to be partnered with something like Steam that already has that infrastructure. And by the way, it runs on Linux, which Google is intimately familiar with. I think there's a good chance that something like this takes off. I'm not a gamer. I like playing some games. I play Counter-Strike all day long. I was just talking about uh, with a couple of friends a, couple, a little bit ago on the, the Linux Unplug program. I'm a huge fan of Factorio. Never played it before. Had a friend in town and uh, we were out. Uh, goofing around and uh, he's like hey you want to play factorio so uh got a copy for myself and a copy for my son and we sat down in the kitchen and burned like a day and a half playing factorio and factorio is a cool game it's, it's essentially just you build things and you continue to build things and then you try to iterate on building things 
And uh, if you like Linux, you will like Factorio. Let me just tell you, if you if you like uh, the concept of I want to decide what web browser I install, what email client I install and how they all work together and stuff like this is exactly what Factorio is. It's just you're doing it with engines and stuff instead of, you know, actual computer parts. But there's a lot of games I don't play. Call of Duty would be one of them. And the reason I don't play them is because I don't have a massive gaming infrastructure and I have no intention of buying one. And if I did buy one, it'd be out of date in three years and then I'd have to do it all over again. And it just, I just don't have time for that. But if I could pay 19 bucks a month or something like that and have access to a, a, a gaming system, yeah, I'd do that. And I'm, and I'm the anti-cloud guy. And I would do that. So I think that uh, gaming streaming services is the future of gaming. And I think that Google is smart to be in the position that they're in. I think it's going to be a very profitable venture for Google if they decide to go forward. And I think they will go for it. I also think it means great things for us on Linux. I think it's going to force game developers. If you want to be relevant, you need to be on this streaming service. And if you want to be on the streaming service, you're going to have to get your game to run on Linux. And if they're going to get their game to run on Linux, chances are they're going to offer it both on the streaming service and available as an independent download. Because there's always going to be those that want to play it locally or want to play at a LAN party where they don't have internet. So I think it means good things for us gaming on Linux. Again, open phones, 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. James calls from Idaho. Hey, James, welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Yeah, I'd like your opinion on what, the, what they're taking with KDE and Dolphin and taking out OpenAI's root capabilities completely. Yeah, so, I mean... Because I use that occasionally. Yeah, uh, you know, the thing is that, so there's a lot, like Ubuntu proper, for example, Ubuntu server has been shipping for years without, uh, with, you know, with root being disabled by default. But I mean, you can always do, you can always run like sudo space su tack, and it will, as a sudo user, will promote you to root. And so you, would that not work for you to be able to execute all your commands? The only... No, they, 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 um, what they did in the new Dolphin is if you sudo open Dolphin as root, it won't run the Dolphin browser anymore. I'm not browser, but file manager. Re yeah, okay. So let me see here, because I'm actually running KDE. So, yeah, yeah, you cannot run Dolphin at all with, the, with root privileges of any kind. You can open the file as root. So if you so you can elevate to root just fine. You just can't when you try, when you try and open up Dolphin, it won't let you. Oh yeah, yep. yeah. Look at that executing. Yeah, it says executing Dolphin as root is not possible. That you know what I agree with you, James. I agree with you 100 percent because there are plenty of times where I mean, I, you know, I work on the command line all the time, so it's not hard for me to jump down to a command prompt and say I'm going to change the permissions of this file. Or I'm going to do this, but there are plenty of times where something is owned by root. And or the permissions are set to only allow it to be read or accessed or executed or whatever by root. And the easiest thing to do is just open Dolphin as root and move that file wherever it is I need it or change the permissions that way. And a lot of times, James, too, I don't know if you've ever run into this, but we deal with other people's computers all the time. And so the, the ownership of a file might be John. And I'm not John, I'm Noah. And so what we can do is we can open up Dolphin, run Dolphin as root, and then browse John's files and, and back all of his stuff up. If I can't do that on Dolphin, that means i got to manually reset all those permissions. I agree, that's kind of a silly thing, but I, I'm, I'm guessing that was done as a security thing? It's a smoke and mirror security. Um, it's almost as, as silly as me saying, I'm coming to your house, take it away because it's a safety thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I hear you. I hear you. Well, yeah, my... So, um, Sorry, go ahead. So, uh, just wanted your opinion on their, I like to call it 
dumb way of doing something. <laughs> yeah, I, you know what, James? I'm, in t- I'm I'm inclined to agree with you completely. I think it's a silly. I think it's a silly thing, and I I too have used that. I I too have opened Dolphin and Nautilus in route numerous times as route numerous times to to solve a problem or to go tackle something. Like you say, especially if we're dealing with somebody else's files. So that that is kind of a silly decision, and I I'm I'm sorry to see that that's happening. If anybody has any information, I'd love to hear about why that is. Live at AskNoahShow.com or give me a call at eight fifty five four fifty Noah. That's eight five five four five zero six six two four. I'd love to hear about that. Uh, I'm sure, like I said, I'm sure it was done from a security perspective, and uh, I'll bet you that somebody will be explaining to me uh, very shortly why. I'll get open phones, 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. Seuss, a 25-year veteran of the Linux world, has been acquired by private equity outfit EQT after less than four years in the hands of former owner Microfocus. The deal announced today puts a price of $2.5 billion on the enterprise open sourcers. And should it be approved by Microfocus shareholders and the relevant authorities? Seuss was founded in 1992, emitting various flavors of Linux before its acquisition of Novell in 2003 for the tidy sum of $210 million. Novell looked to its penguin-flavored new friend to staunch the flow of red from its finances. Unfortunately, things didn't go entirely to plan, and the former network Supremo was bought by Attachmate in 2011. For its part, Seuss is pretty happy with the deal. It will retain its CEO, Nihilus Brackerman, who seemed to be pleased with the who seem to be pleased for free from microfocus saying today is an exciting day in Seuss's history by partnering with EQT. We will become a fully independent business. Now I, I checked with three different people before I went on, before I came on the air today, because I was, conf- I, I was a bit confused. Um, I don't know how they call this a free and independent business. Um, they're not, they were bought out. I don't know why they're calling it a partnership. They, it would appear that they have been bought out. But um, Seuss changed his hands again. And, uh, I, you know, I, the thing is, I, three, three, we have five different people that work on the Ask Noah show that helped me prepare the show and, and research articles and stuff like that. And every one of them today said, yeah, I got to talk about the Seuss thing. And I, I'm going to say here on air what I told all of them. I don't really have much to say about this. Seuss changes another hand. I have yet to ever see a situation that Seuss is particularly suited for that another distro wouldn't do just as well and oftentimes better. And um, so, I, I mean, that's, I guess, where we're at. Uh, but just so you know, Seuss has been sold. You heard it here. Uh, and uh, we wish them all the best of luck. I hope, uh, I hope that, that something comes up for them that uh, they find their niche. Uh, aws.amazon.com slash blogs headline Amazon Linux workspaces over two years ago I explained why I love my Amazon workspace today with well over three years of experience under my belt I have no reason to return to a local non-managed desktop I never have to worry about losing or breaking my laptop keeping multiple working environments in sync or planning for disruptive hardware upgrades regardless of where I am or what I'm using I'm highly confident that I can log into my workspace find the apps and files that I need and get work done As a workspace user, you can already choose between multiple hardware configurations and software bundles. You can choose between hardware and the desired amount of compute power. And of course, now they're offering Linux. Apologize, the time got away from me. Hey guys, do you know the show is available as a downloadable podcast? That's right. To download all of the latest articles and reference in this episode, check it out at podcast.asknoahshow.com. You can follow us on Twitter to get the latest at Ask Noah Show. 
The Ask Noah Show continues next Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central. A huge thanks to Vox Telesis for providing our phone systems, Ben, our producer, and Sarah, our call screener. This hour of the show may be over. There's plenty more content for you 24-7 at asknoahshow.com. <laughs>